Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 26. I'm Joshua Klein. And I'm Mike Optograph. In the news around here, uh, issue 10 is out. Issue 10, if you are in the U.S., hopefully you've received it already, or it'll be stuck in your mailbox today. Uh, if you are an international subscriber or even um, if you're in Canada, uh, things are taking longer these days. Yep. Uh, certainly stuff getting across borders and things, there's a lot of backlog. But um, hang tight and it, you should be getting it soon. We have heard from some Canadian subscribers who have gotten their copies and that's awesome. I just uh, talked with an Australian who has not yet seen his copy. So. Yeah. Yeah, we are. It's on the way. We're as anxious as you are to see these safely uh, into your hands. So, yeah. um, hang tight, and it'll be any day now. Yep. Um, but we've been busy with box sets. Um, the last episode of this podcast, we talked about um, our issues one through ten box set production and how we're making these pine boxes with dovetailed tops and everything. So. We have the first batch all done and boxed up with shipping labels ready to go. Uh, so that's been exciting. Yeah. Um, and we will be, those will be going out the door, what, t- tomorrow or something? We'll uh, see when the pickup is. Yeah, today I think we're, we're having a, a pickup today's, today. Today's a pickup, okay. Yeah. So the first uh, batch is on its way. Um, and we'll, we're starting, actually, another, we're having a delivery of more lumber. Yeah. And we'll be starting the second batch uh, today. So we're excited about that. It's been a blast doing it. Um, we've also been blogging about it. So on our blog, you'll see um, some pictures we've been sharing and, and different thoughts we've had um, as we've been uh, thinking about and, and enjoying this batch production process. So yeah. it's sort of the blog is, you know, um, joined up or kind of dovetailed with the last episode that we were talking about batch production. So if you're interested in seeing that, you can jump on the blog to check out that process we also um we do have a few slots on the wait list for the box sets that we are willing to fill right oh uh, we didn't we, we never promised <laughs> how much are we willing to bite off we never mm. promised any certain number because we didn't know if it would be brutal to get through all this production but we're loving it so much yeah that, yeah and that fact, we're willing to do yeah. more yeah <laughs> Yeah, yesterday you were up here doing some administrative stuff, and you're like, I'm antsy. I, I really need to get down there and, and yep. make some stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, there is a little bit more room. If you are interested in putting your name on the waiting list for this box set, uh, send us an email at uh, info at mortisandtenonmag.com, and we'll put your name in. Another fun thing that we've been doing is putting up a uh, video series on YouTube we're calling it setting up shop. Basically, just some practical advice for looking at setting up a, a hand tool woodworking shop. Uh, so the first video in the series, uh, we looked at our shop here, how it's set up, and took in uh, to consideration things like lighting and storage and the, the size of the shop space, size of benches, uh, different things like that. Uh, the most recent video Joshua was looking specifically at uh, the workbenches and he looked at uh, the three different benches we have we have the um, 12 foot English style uh, Nicholson bench on the north wall here of our shop uh, we have the low uh, also known as the Roman style workbench yeah like a, uh, a staked bench yeah big it's like the world's greatest sawhorse mm-hmm. it's a slab of wood with four sticks at the bottom yeah yeah very high high style mm-hmm. uh, but it's a great bench for all kinds of work mm-hmm. and then the the six foot kind of nickel nicholson style but portable bench yeah very portable uh that bench is uh, we talked about in the video but it's just assembled with star bit torx screws yeah. <laughs> so it's not some fancy construction but it's designed to be able to take it apart in a few minutes uh, for for woodworking shows or whatever. But it's it's pretty rugged. It's amazing. Um, you can do any you know most anything you'd want on that. It, yep. You don't have to really think too much about it mm-hmm. uh, if it's going to be able to handle it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a great great little bench, and we're having fun putting together these videos. They're they're very uh, low key 
and it's kind of, you know, I'm holding the camera and Josh was talking or vice versa. And uh, we're just putting them together and getting this information out. Uh, and we've gotten a lot of good feedback. Yeah, people seem really excited. They like practical stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they like helpful, practical advice. And, and that's that's what we're looking to provide in this series. So uh, another video will be, I believe, coming out next couple week. Couple weeks. Yeah. Couple weeks. We'll time. say a couple weeks safely. Uh, so that's not all that's going on around here, but that's all that we're going to talk about today. <sighs> yeah, if you're not on our email list... Uh, that's really we got so much stuff going on uh and we've been talking about some stuff we're about to announce another big announcement next week and then we have stuff later on in the year like we we are working on so much stuff right now it's hard to keep it all straight so uh, for us so um if if you want to if you want more news about different programs products different stuff that we have going on here uh, get on our email list uh, that can be found on our website uh, and we'll keep you up to date. Uh, certainly, if you only listen to this podcast, you're missing a lot of information. There's a lot right. of stuff that's going on that we don't talk about. So um, jump on our website, log or, uh, sign up for our email list, and you'll kind of see the full breadth of the stuff that we're trying to juggle here. So, yeah. But uh, today we wanted to talk about, um, as we've been in the shop working on these, these boxes, we've been thinking about, I had this question I've been thinking about the past couple of days, you know, how many tools do we really need? <laughs> That's the main question. So we have this essential question. Yeah. We have this shop. We love antique tools. Um, just about all of our tools here, I think almost all of them are antique tools mm-hmm. and or tools we made based on antiques. Um, and so we have a lot of them around because we've picked them up at antique stores and things like that. Um, but how many does a person really need? And so we wanted to talk about this question because as we've been working through the boxes, yeah. I have a little tiny pile yeah. of the same few tools on my corner of the bench and Mike's got his little stash and that's it to yeah. build, to do all the joiner. We only have you know, a half dozen or maybe a dozen tools we're working with, but we have all these other tools around the shop. So we wanted to talk about that. Do you need all them or why are the why all those molding planes good to have around or are they not? worth having or right. all that kind of stuff so yeah this is this is a question that we hear a lot um you know joshua's book joined came out and again we've gotten some really awesome feedback from that and a lot of people writing and and asking questions uh questions about tools what the, should they be looking for should they do they need all five saws suggested in the book or in the apprenticeship foundations video uh it talks about five different saws that um you know on one hand you could say well that's all you need on the other hand you could say but can i get away with less and so we've had people writing and saying what should i get first what do i what should i prioritize Mm -hmm. um and so that that whole question of how do i get started is really the basis for a lot of a lot of different books like the anarchist tool chest and and others you know the the minimalist woodworker and other books like that where they say here's here are the basics here's what you need and this is this is where you start from this is what you can build off of um so we're we're looking at it from a perspective of you know like where can you stop like Mm -hmm. what what is enough uh to do pretty much all you would need to do um uh, the thing about uh, Christopher Schwartz's anarchist tool chest that I've appreciated, um, you know, he's talking about what's the this basic kit you need to make pretty much anything. Um, but what I really like about it is um, the the idea that you find a few tools. You have one four plane, say, mm-hmm. because if you have three <clears throat> four planes, you have to keep four. You know, you have to keep multiple four planes tuned up and sharp but if you only have one you only have to keep one in good condition and so he said people have that problem that they multiply the same tool and they're trying to they're constantly sharpening and or not probably not they probably have three sitting around that are not sharp and one that is sharp or they just try to cycle through or something um and so really it is helpful because you know there are some there are a few tools that i just gravitate towards and i just love and i try to use as much as possible mm. and that really simplifies it i don't have a dozen chisels i'm sharpening right. i have a few that i sharpen yeah um and so that's a, a big 
thing that I learned from Christopher Schwarz in his book and his writing, that this, this value of uh, simplifying, paring down to this, the few basic things you really actually use and focusing on those, hmm. um, that's what's been, it helps with efficiency, I think, because you're not wasting time maintaining so much stuff. Right. Yeah. And um, as, as you alluded to, you know, we both really favor old tools mm-hmm. and tools that we track down and um, clean up and, and get back into working order. And we'll discuss this a little bit later, the idea of quality. Um, but old tools are, I think, just in general, especially when you compare with a lot of the, the I'll say, so-called hand tools you buy at the big box stores, Sure. The, the quality is just awful. Um, the steel, yeah. everything, you know, you can just fold an edge over on a, a hand plane that you buy it. Well, I won't name names, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, old old tools are just in general of better quality. They were meant to be used kind of unlike the, the hand tools that you buy today in those, those big box stores. Yeah, I mean, I would say pretty much across the board, don't buy any hand tools from big box stores. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Maybe there's an exception out there, but I don't know yep. about it and I wouldn't recommend it. Like those rasps that are also chisels. Those are pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Don't um, buy those. They're terrible. But if we're looking at edge tools, you know, I would just say don't even go to the big box store. You got to go to a real tool supplier. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot is in using old tools, the the draw of advertising is totally removed. You know, when you're starting out and you're a woodworker and you're flipping through a magazine and you're like, oh, I apparently really need that because they say I really need that. Or this this ad says I need this thing or I need to outfit my shop with this latest thing. Um, Using hand tools and using old tools, it totally removes that uh, confusing factor of advertising. Mm Um, unless you're looking through, you know, your old 1886 copy of some woodworking magazine with its crazy claims about how awesome those tools are. Um, but I think it's really good to, to eliminate that whole variable when you're considering what tools to buy. I know whenever I did more um, power tool woodworking decades ago, I was always drawn more to like, oh, I need I need to get a bigger, you know, electric plane uh, for this task or that task. And um, you go and you, you browse the showrooms and that sort of thing. It's nice to have that removed mm-hmm. um, so that you're not as drawn in to the uh, advertising thrown at you. But um, yeah. the other side of that, too, is is making our own tools. Right. Um, most of them are modeled after uh, historic tools, um, different gauges and things like that. You've made a few planes, mm-hmm. um, just all made to meet a specific need, uh, very particular need. Yeah, I talked about that doing. in my article about making a wooden brace um, for boring holes, that kind of brace. Um, I talked about, you know... It, it, there's this thing that happens, especially with social media, it's gotten you know more and more pervasive that this whole idea of wanting to fit in and you know, desiring what other people have and oh, I want to be cool and have the same, the same brace or plane or workbench or vice or whatever the thing is. I, I want to have what everybody else has. The people who really know, they have it, whatever. Yeah. Um, and that's just is so uninteresting to me. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so I just don't care about that stuff at all. Yeah. Um, and In fact, I would say you viscerally react okay, against that's, that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I I abhor yeah, <laughs> that yeah. kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, I, I like old tools because I can find, you know, some chisels at the bottom of a box in an antique store and say, oh, yeah, this one looks really in, like it's in great shape. And, it's, you know, yeah. I find out it has good steel. It holds an edge. I'm through the roof because now I have a chisel that I can use and I'm done. I don't have right. to go, you know, searching for other tools. Um, and so I, I think this really trying to find out what works, what you need, and then forget all the rest of it. Mm. You don't need it. So don't listen to advertisements. Don't fall, chase down that stuff. Look for quality tool makers who are selling what you need 
and support them get that one thing you need and move on you yeah. don't need all this stuff people are trying to sell you yeah so yeah and uh in determining what is a quality tool you know everybody um who's starting out they will you know you'll, you'll come across a few duds right and we both have have hit that where we've we found a tool that we thought would would work out well or that we thought we'd like and we tune it up and we find something about it that just doesn't feel right doesn't mm-hmm. fit right um doing batch production for us kind of really helped to simplify you know the the needed toolkit for the specific tasks that we were doing um for these these box sets we got to the point where you know we had you know i always like i take my tools and i like lay them across the bench and i start using different things and then i get to a point where i'm not using you know half of what i put out so i just put those away because i might have started out thinking oh i'd need this oh i'd need that um we talked about you know the the stopped groove in the top of the box how are we going to do that now Mm. are we going to try and use a plane for that or is that kind of pointless as it turns out yes that would have been a pointless um operation but we had all the tools set out and then we determined the best way to do it and it just takes you know one tool and not the whole tool roll and so we just leave the one tool out and put the rest away so that kind of um process really helps to um see what your tools are capable of and see which ones work best for the task Mm -hmm. um but I think for me, it's not even just this one batch production too. I mean, that's I think that is true when you're working on one project and you have to do a bunch of the same. You have those only those tools set out. But I mean, even for me, like there is one chisel I really like. <laughs> I mean, I like other ones, but I yeah. really like this one. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite. It's a three quarter inch chisel, um, and I like the handle and the the um, the edge holding ability. And um, all the others that I have, I only grab them when I need to. So like if I, if, because this chisel is three quarters of an inch, if I need to get into a smaller space, okay, fine. I'll use another chisel. <laughs> yeah. But otherwise I try to get away with, with using just that. So I use basically whatever chisel is small enough to get into the space I have to, my three quarter inch chisel and then I have a two-inch chisel that's used to, like, pair pins. Right. That's it. I, I own a bunch of other ones that I don't really touch. They're for yeah. students and stuff like that. Um, and so I think that's a, it's an important thing for people to realize that, you know, you kind of have, like, okay, here are the f- here's the, the four, the four uh, chisel kit that you have to have. You have to have the quarter-inch and the half-inch and the three-quarters and the one-inch. And for me, I'm... I just don't find that's actually really a useful mm. distinction to make. Right. Um, I have a few that I gravitate towards, but you know, when you're when you're chopping dovetails, you'll see pretty quickly. Okay, well, my three quarter inch can fit this kind of spacing for a tail, so I can get do this kind of dovetail this way. But anything smaller, like a drawer, I got to jump down to this other, you know, mm. three eighths or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so you'll figure that out really quickly and then you just find that tool that you fall in love with and i would just say stick with it mm-hmm. just focus on it if if the if it holds a good edge and it's comfortable to use and it you know if it's attractive you like to, you like to use it you enjoy it right forget the rest of the other chisels um, or back saws i have one crosscut back saw that i just love using the handle's so great everything's just tuned up nicely and i just love using it does it and have a name T. <laughs> it has a T on it, so that's <laughs> that's T. T the saw. Mr. T, I call him. Yeah. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> I, I haven't heard those conversations with your tools. I remember being asked that before oh, yeah. by um, Cameron Turner wrote an article for us where he had his whole uh, English class uh, recreate Thoreau's desk, mm-hmm. and we did a few. Um, video back and forths with his class and one of the questions they asked was do do you name your tools and i remember you, you're like well this is saw and this is plain uh so that's about as far as we've gotten with with naming tools mm-hmm. uh so if any anybody out there if you name your tools 
Uh, just so you know, we think that's kind of weird. But it's okay for you if you want to do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the um, you there's also this um, cross-cut uh, handsaw that you love that uh, broke at one point, didn't it? <sighs> what yes. was that? We were doing a house construction. No, you project. know what it was? And I this is a really good... So it was the um, the the deck for our wood shop has these big um, like the manufactured I beam. Oh yes, right, right, right. Why am yeah. I not thinking of the the yeah I trusses or whatever? It's, yeah, it's like an I beam. Yeah, I beam type thing, and we were cutting them to length, and I used my favorite crosscut hand saw, mm-hmm. and I think it was like the last one that it got kinked or stuck, and I just broke a chunk out. Yeah, broke down a the chunk out line. of the teeth. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, you were really severely bummed over that. That was like a $12 saw, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And, but you still so it was use really it. Expensive. You still use that saw even with the chunk taken out because you well, love that saw. Rarely. <laughs> <laughs> but it still works as long as you avoid that. But <laughs> when you catch, oh. Yeah. oh, it's tough. Yeah. It can hurt. No, I got to send that to someone to, uh, a, a, you know, a saw doctor to kind of right. refile that down. And yeah, it's bad. It's really it. bad. Yeah, but that was that was a great saw. It only lasted like 175 years, right? Mm-hmm. And then I <laughs> broke it. it on an I beam. <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, there are there are kind of uh, the different mindsets in tooling in equipping your shop. You know, we're talking about in our YouTube series there setting up a shop. Um, and one of the things that we said, and what what I said in the first video was. Uh, the shop we have downstairs is like way too big for like a person having a shop. Mm-hmm. We had the intention of, you know, that shop space down there is for students. We have way more bench space than one or two people would ever use. Which this space is 24 by 26. Yeah. So that's huge. That's more, way more than you need. For a hand tool shop. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Uh, if you're equipping a power tool shop, that space would get very small very fast. You get your big, you know, massive unisaw and you get your your chop saw station and your drill press and your router bench. And oh, my goodness, pretty soon it's getting pretty crowded. You don't have room for your uh, dual cyclonic dust collector in the corner. So you have to put a little addition on to throw that outside and uh, stuff gets crowded. Uh, so there are kind of different mindsets for the way you set up a shop. Obviously, the first is just in philosophy. Is it going to be hand tools, power tools? But um, also just in this whole discussion of, you know, uh, how many tools do I need? And am I going to go to have every specialty tool for every operation? Or am I going to maximize the tools that I have? Um, I remember, you know, watching as a kid. And I've, I've talked about this before. I would watch uh, on PBS Saturday mornings. It would be the New Yankee Workshop with Norm Abram. Loved that show. Followed by uh, the Woodwright Shop with Roy Underhill. Also loved that show. Two very different approaches to, you know, tool use. Whereas Norm had his um, massive drawer full of routers. And every few episodes, it seems like he was making a new router bench with with drawers to slide out to store his his routers or he'd have some jig for for shaping molding or for i always thought of it as he had a machine where he'd put the lumber in and out would come his shaker style you know corner cupboard or whatever uh and it was i always loved that show but i was always intimidated thinking it's gonna take me a lot of time and money to set up a shop so i can do woodworking but then of course roy is just you know making stuff with a handful of tools at his his bench and he always has to move stuff off his bench to make room (laughs) to do it uh but i always thought that was a really interesting uh combination of perspectives in just one hour on saturday morning yeah i um i remember meeting with a furniture maker uh many years ago and i was talking with him we were talking i was kind of starting my shop and to restore furniture and I was, you know, getting tooled up and he was talking about, you know, he said, when you're doing a project, um, you know, always each project 
invest in another tool or put money towards another tool. So you're always building your shop. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was talking about, you know, you can start with wherever you're at. And he said, and I remember this, it stuck with me. He said, you can, you could theoretically build a high boy with a screwdriver. <laughs> he, he said, you could, you could sharpen it and harden it and, you know, put an edge on it and Whoa. use it as a chisel. And I mean, I think that's theoretical and I don't even know how in the world you would really actually do that. Um, Somebody's got to try that. Someone, if you, if you build a high boy with a screwdriver, uh, send us a picture. Yeah, please. Um, but the idea was just, you know, you can make do and you can make your own tools and, and figure something out. However, that would be horrible mm. to do. That would be, that would take so long. It would not be fun. So of right. course you want to tool up and get some more efficient tools, get a saw. Maybe, yeah. Maybe and, a saw. You know, Several things. Cutting mahogany to length with a screwdriver. Oh my goodness. That would be so pretty special. But so that there's this kind of this sweet spot. But I remember um, meeting uh, a luthier, going to his a really high end luthier, going to his shop, and he literally had a wall full of routers mm. with bits that were set <clears throat> for one specific operation. I don't. He must have had. 50 routers or something on the wall oh. and they only did one thing and he never made any adjustments because that made all of his guitars dead perfect dead mm-hmm. dead on um and so for what he was charging for these guitars it was you know an efficient use of financial resources right. to buy another 200 dollars router for that one task um so that's as a totally different approach obviously um for somebody who's doing that kind of work or like mass production that makes sense to, to approach it that way. But I think most of us, we're not approaching it that way. We're, we're not trying to be a factory. Um, so then it, then we need to say, okay, well, I need more than a screwdriver, but where is that sweet spot? And what exactly am, am I trying to do uh, with this time in the shop? Right. So I think mm-hmm. understanding your, looking at your goals as the, as the first factor in determining that are important. Um, are you doing batch production? Is this just, you know, some hobby for you that, you know, you do on the weekends, you know, at least once a month, you spend a little bit of time in the shop kind of fooling around making shavings? Well, okay, maybe you don't need a full anarchist tool chest full of all of the tools, then maybe you just have fun playing around with some stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have to think about what your priorities are and what kinds of things you make. um, And that determines where you're starting but i wouldn't say look at a big long list and then buy all of the tools right. <laughs> i would say plan a project and start there yeah and then you'll you'll start learning what you need what you enjoy to work with yeah i mean we we hear a lot about the the concept of the right tool for the job and you hear that um for uh you know like doing auto repairs and things like that there are specific tasks that definitely require specific tools uh and i have you know spent a lot of my time in working on cars trying to make subpar tools do the job and it it leads to you know bruised knuckles and uh lots of headaches how's your finger by the way it's it's looking good Uh, and that was from the right tool yeah that's less purple than yesterday exhaust work over the weekend (laughs) and uh i couldn't get at uh a bolt with my pneumatic gun so i was in there with a socket wrench and a three foot long pipe on the end of it and i had about you know like four inches of room and i ended up getting a pretty good bruise on my my finger but i mean that's sort of par for the course sometimes in there but yeah it's always funny because if you have a task in working on a car that you've always struggled with and then you uh, buy that specialty tool for that and you go and use it and it's just slick as anything right mm-hmm. the ball joint pops right apart and um, you say wow where has this been all my life and I would say that that is more of a like um, a, a batch production like assembly line type of perspective where you need just the one tool for that one operation that's more of a specialist than a generalist right like how many how many ball joints do you replace in a year if you're just maintaining your family's one or two vehicles? It's really not many, honestly. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's it's less than one. Um, so if you're looking at like t- 
tooling up with some really awesome specialty hand tool that does one thing really, really well, you do have to look at, well, how often am I really going to use that? And can I use this other tool in combination with skillful use, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, um, to do that same thing and still enjoy it um, without the complication or the expense of, of this additional tool? Um, sort of as an example, you know, the, the idea of um, the democratic chair, um, and people hear that and they think, they think uh, about Curtis Buchanan and the chairs he's making, you know, with just a, a draw knife finish, right? It's a Windsor chair. Uh, it can be made with a handful of simple tools. Well, um, also, if, if you're familiar with uh, Bill Copperthwaite and his work, he also had a vision of a democratic chair. I think Curtis got the idea from from Bill, didn't he? I thought that's yeah, what I saying. believe that is the, the there is a connection there. Mm-hmm. Um, but but Bill's idea of a democratic chair was basically a chair that anyone could make with basically just a knife and a plank, right? Mm-hmm. So right now I am sitting on a democratic chair. I'm sitting on a Bill Copperthwaite style uh, democratic chair that I attempted to make with just a knife. I did use a saw to cut the boards to length. I didn't want to just mm-hmm. scribe the heck out of it to break through. Um, and we've we've discussed. I mean, this this tool is a great. Or this chair is a great conversation piece because we say, <laughs> now was that really worth it? Like, is that is that absolute like minimalism as the uh, absolute end pursuit in making something? Is that really worth doing? Was that fun to do? Because mm-hmm. um, it gets really tricky, you know, cutting the, the, these angles and things on boards with a knife. Uh, and, you know, your fit and finish can decline a little bit there too. Yeah. Uh, so that is kind of the extreme of the minimalism take. Like, I'm just going to make furniture with a knife or like you said, a high boy with a screwdriver. Um, <clears throat> so... Back a few issues, it was in issue uh, seven, um, I wrote an article about work holding where I, I was talking about kind of these minimalist approaches to uh, work holding from different woodworking traditions. And uh, one of the things uh, I was uh, talking to someone who um, I had seen some of his work in different venues, a, a guy named Nick Dillingham who makes all kinds of beautiful, um, he makes baskets, he makes carvings, he carves spoons. Um, He's doing stuff out of this kind of Northwoods tradition of uh, what they call the four-tool philosophy. Uh, And so that is basically this this ancient indigenous tradition of anything wooden that you needed, you made with four different tools. So it was the, the axe, the uh, crooked knife, the knife, and the awl. And so um, I, in this article, focused mostly on the, the Mokotagan or crooked knife, which was a very, an extremely multi-purpose tool. It is used for building canoes, making canoe paddles. It's basically like a one-handed draw knife that cuts towards you, and you use your other hand for holding the work. Um, so I, I just wanted to read a quick excerpt here about that philosophy. Um, So it says, the tools themselves develop to meet criteria being portable, versatile, and endlessly repairable. They could all be used one-handed with the other hand, often in conjunction with the body and feet, providing the necessary work holding. Only four tools with variations of each comprise the toolbox of the Northern maker and every necessary wooden object from spoons, bowls, and snowshoes up to canoes and shelters could be made using this minimalist kit. Modern adherence to this ancient means sometimes referred to it as the four-tool philosophy. And so Nick told me, he said, this system of woodworking requires more knowledge of the material than most. It's 90% mental and 10% physical. So the idea is replacing more specialty tools with skill and knowledge of the materials. And that was the the traditional way of doing it. I mean, like imagine uh, looking at a woodworking project that you need uh, to make and knowing that you only have four 
tools uh, with which to to accomplish it. Mm-hmm. So what that would require is um, a really good knowledge of wood and efficient ways to work it with such simple tools, um, but also just a great degree of skill with the tools that you have. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like what we were talking about. Um, we've been talking about a lot that um, technology is the, is the, the essence of technology is outsourcing that you're 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 taking a piece of the task and you're saying I'm going to create a fence that the uh, workpiece will be guided against or right. I'm going to outsource the energy supplied so I'm going to make this tool electric yeah. or I'm going to you know somehow have it regulated or powered outside or even maybe designed by somebody else who knows better about design than me so all this technological development is outsourcing aspects of the work and so what you're doing in that is you're maybe making the outcome more reliable, more predictable, more certain, more accurate, maybe. Um, hopefully those things are all true. Um, but you're, you're getting that at the, at the cost or the expense of active engagement, skill development, skill use. And so um, that's not intrinsically bad. Some things are really helpful to have done for you Uh um but other things uh you know like being able to record this podcast on our recorder and be able to send it out to someone what that's outsourcing is us showing up at your house right and telling you this having this discussion with you which would be inefficient which would be inefficient so it's it's obviously it's a great blessing that we can record this put this on the internet and however many people are going to listen to it so there that's a good way to outsource but if we outsource everything, mm-hmm. if, we, if we're constantly thinking, how can I do less? How right. can I be less involved with my daily work? Yeah. At some point, we're going to say, hmm, I just kind of feel like I'm coasting through and consuming. Yeah. So that's what we're talking about. You know, I would say, if you say, I'm going to try to build a high boy with a screwdriver, I would say, okay, I mean, you, you can. That's, that's not really the path I would want to go. But I also wouldn't say, therefore... Don't make a high boy. Just buy one. I would say, well, you're missing out. I mean, you should try it. Yeah. You should try making one. It's really fun. And try look at try these... a middle road. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. So I think it's one of those things of, uh, you know, understanding what outsourcing the value of it, but out, really understanding the, the trade-offs that you have. So we talk about, we say our goal is to opt for engagement. Right. You know, constantly want to say, how can I be involved with my work? Not in a way that's burdensome but in a way that challenges me and stimulates my brain and teaches gives me opportunity to develop dexterity hand skills um, always making sure that's present in your life in your in your shop time is sort of the sweet spot for us mm. so like one example is uh, let's say cutting dados you can use a dado plane mm-hmm. and it is so slick right when you get that thing dialed in a dado plane is so awesome. It's so slick. Um, but if you only ever have done that and you've never cut a dado by hand, sawing the two walls and uh, paring out the bottom with a chisel, uh, you're really going to be missing out understanding what's involved with that. So I think that kind of thing is important. And, and perhaps you'd say, you do that and say, well, I, I really like the dado plane though. And yeah, great, go for it. Use yeah. that thing. But <clears throat> I think it's it's important at least for us, we think a lot about how can we uh, have engagement be a very present value in the way that we're approaching our work. I mean, I don't know anybody, I can't think of anybody off the top of my head who today is a furniture maker because it's cheaper than buying other furniture. Right. That's not why people are doing woodworking, because it's cheaper or it's faster or it's more efficient or whatever. There's enough furniture to go around. People are woodworkers because they want to learn to work with their hands. And so I think if we just say, let's be clear about that and explicit and say that's a real value, then things like this four-tool philosophy, maybe maybe certain woodworkers would say, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm curious to try to make a paddle with a crooked knife. Yeah. I mean, that. how can you even do that? Yeah. Um, so I think it's not crazy to, to attempt that way that path it's just you kind of have to see what's your goal a paddle maybe works a high boy with a mokotagan would not probably work um so 
having a clear goal in your mind, what you're trying to make will determine uh, how much engagement, how, what tools you should have and what engagement you should, um, what level of tooling will get the engagement you want. Yeah, exactly. So if, uh, if somebody was asking, which people do, just very practically, what do we recommend for people? Mm -hmm. um, basic tools to start out with. What, what do you need to get, as, as you and I have found, what is the sweet spot of uh, tools to use for, for most every woodworking project that we do around here in terms of, let's say, saws? Mm -hmm. Practically speaking, what do we recommend to people? Uh what I would say is if you're looking at building some kind of piece of furniture from boards, um, if I would say you could break it down to, I would say two, a crosscut handsaw and a crosscut backsaw. Hmm. That's what I would say, mm -hmm. because it would be really hard to, to have one of the other do the other's job. Right. You know, um, yeah. you, if you're having a full board, then you need a bigger saw to be able to handle that one that doesn't have a back so that you can saw straight through. Um, but then once you're putting joinery together, I, I, I don't know how you would use a, a crosscut handsaw right. to do yep. any of that kind of stuff. Uh, and then you, it wouldn't be tight, I guess. Mm. So those things are, are important. I also, so in that you're, I'm excluding uh, a rip saw, either back saw, uh, like a tenon saw or a rip handsaw because you can rip with a crosscut saw. Mm -hmm. It's really slow yeah. and cuts really fine and it's not efficient. And therefore I would say like ripping with a crosscut saw would be not fun. Yeah. I would not enjoy that. So I would encourage you the next saw maybe is, you know, get a four TPI rip saw, yeah. you know, and just plow through that material and say, whoa talk about the right yeah. tool for the job yeah. this is yeah that turned awesome. the corner yeah yeah a lot of people have uh these um they're kind of scared of ripping by hand i think a lot of that is just not having the right saw like if you try and it, it's fun to set people up with like one inch pine and a four tpi rip saw because <laughs> they're, they're like well this is faster than a table saw this is crazy yeah uh it just seems like a, a totally different perspective on it yeah it's not actually faster than a table no saw, well but... in some applications maybe yeah. depends who's using the table saw yeah i mean i can um i'm working on some writing right now thinking about um working in pine and different hand tools and stuff and um i was i i, I wrote this down and then i said oh yeah that's right i should double check to make sure this is accurate that in one inch pine every single stroke of my four tpi rip saw is one inch mm -hmm. so if i that's, that's an four, inch every yeah, single time four inches of ripping yeah so it's it is quite fast it's yeah. crazy fast um so it really makes sense to to begin to you know get um a crosscut rip saw a, a crosscut handsaw crosscut uh back saw a rip handsaw and then a, like a tenon saw which is a, a rip back saw to have those and then the fifth saw that we recommend is a dovetail saw which is yeah. a smaller finer back saw so that that's a list that's five yeah but you don't need to start with all of them um, yeah. but once you're really making furniture you'll see there's a reason those five kind of go together they all do different things yeah and they're really good at what they do yeah if you wanted to kill two birds with one stone you could get a ryoba <laughs> japanese saw which has cross-cut teeth on one side and ripped teeth on the other. That's true. Two for one. Yeah, and you put that in your little your little Japanese tool chest, and you're good to go. Yeah. Those actually work great, and uh, it's a lot of fun to use just as a kind of a general construction saw, I found. If you're cutting two-by-fours or stuff, get, get one of those. Um, or if maybe if you want to cut an I-beam, you won't waste your precious, <laughs> <laughs> your, your precious handsaw. Yeah, I should have borrowed your saw. Yeah, you should have used that for sure. <laughs> um, okay, so in terms of uh, planes, we are big proponents of the four plane around here. Yep. Yeah, the four plane or the jack plane, some people call it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that is what does 75% of my planing for sure. Um, there are some projects, especially when I'm building... Um, in a 
maybe I'd say a consciously vernacular style, <laughs> right? Uh, meaning it's it's coarser and rougher on purpose. Uh, there's a cabinet I made like that, and a few other things, um, so that the finish, the final exterior surface, is a four plane finish. Um, uh, there was stuff, a lot of stuff was made like that too, but the four plane does most of the work. The trying plane, the long plane, a lot of people call it a joiner plane, um, but the, the long trying plane is just for making sure you have a long flat. Yeah. I mean, really, there are not yeah. too many situations that you have to have that be the case. Yeah, it's for it's for trying the surface. Exactly. It's for determining its flatness. Yeah. And then the smoothing plane is for smoothing or planing really small stuff. So you can get around that for a lot, especially if you're if you're happy with the four plane finish uh, on your some vernacular piece of furniture. Well, then you don't even need a smoothing plane. Um, typically, I am using a smoothing plane on most projects. Yeah. Um, but if you can get a four plane or a jack plane, uh, we use wooden planes because we're uh, severely biased because they're better. Yes. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Um, but no, we, we, lo- we love wooden planes. <laughs> um, so if you can, I mean, I would say if you can get uh, a four or jack plane, wooden plane set up, you should be able to make a ton of stuff. Yeah. And then it's only at those few other <clears throat> steps that you'll say, oh, I can see why I would want a, a smoothing plane. Yeah, trying plane. And I, I mentioned to you how I thought it was kind of funny because um, for a lot of my uh, really rough planing work, I have this German style. Um, you wouldn't call it a scrub plane because it's it's got a two inch iron, but it's it's a really cambered iron. And um, during our summer workshop uh, here a couple years ago, one of the students grabbed that because it, it looked it it's like the size of a, a coffin bodied smoothing plane. Mm-hmm. And he grabbed that and set it really finely and used that for the week as his smoothing plane. And, you know, it was it's a... You could see the tracks because it was clearly, yeah. you know, really cambered iron. But you can set it really finely. Yep. And you can do smoothing type operations with that plane. It's Even though the mouth is wide open, it can still take really fine shavings. So mm-hmm. um, that's, you know, doing doing a couple different jobs killing two birds with one stone uh, with that well that and, style and, and actually as you're saying that of course our box sets we aren't using any smoothing planes right that's just yeah. all four plane finish four plane surface because we wanted that that texture that that surface so um on my particular on my example so like i think mike has a lot more camber on his iron than my four plane um mine's a little bit more shallow um but both of them are four plane surfaces yeah. so um yeah, you really can put as much camber on it, and then you can... I've even heard of some people, especially this works with um, sort of mass-manufactured metal body planes. People will swap out irons, mm. so they'll have one that has more camber and one that has less camber. Um, the reason that wouldn't really work as well for a wooden-bodied plane is because you you match the bed, the wooden bed, to the, to the iron. idiosyncrasies of yeah. the iron. So you, they're not really interchangeable, right? Um, but theoretically, yeah. you could do that yeah. too. But really, I would just get a second plane for that. Have yeah. a smoothing plane and, and a four plane. So I would say get a four plane, then get a smoothing plane, and then lastly get a trying plane. Mm-hmm. That that's in terms of bench planes. Um, but then there are all sorts of other planes out there: joinery planes, like a dado plane or rabbit plane or philister plane, things like that. Um, or um, the decorative molding planes and things like right. that, that whole path. And I would say y- you only need them when you need them. Yeah. <laughs> Meaning if you're going to cut molding, well, okay, you can't do much without a molding plane or a hollow and round set or something like that. Or if you, um, Matt Bickford has written about yeah. you know, making molding with hollows and rounds. Um, but, but really, uh, I would say only if you're making molding, do you even care about that? And then for the joinery planes, all, all that joinery planes are doing, say a dado plane, like I mentioned earlier, is making your dado operation more efficient, faster, more reliable. So all that stuff can be done by hand. Mm. And sometimes it makes more sense. It makes more sense to do it by hand. Um, 
like if you have a stopped dado, we just wrote a blog post about that. Uh, for this box set, we have a stopped dado, so you wouldn't be using, um, or stopped groove, rather, right. yep. a, a stopped groove. So rather than having the groove run all the way through, it just made more sense to chop it all with a quarter inch chisel. Yeah. Um, it's faster that way. So some operations, that is the case. But joinery planes, I would say they're a luxury and they're fun to use. Once you've done it by hand and then you get one of these, uh, by hand I mean a saw and a chisel. Right. And then you get a data plane, you're like, whoa, this thing's sweet. Um, so really joinery planes are just a luxury, I would yeah. say. Yeah, and in terms of molding planes, um, I was really struck in your Jonathan Fisher research when you found that all the molding he did in his house, all the molding he ever made for furniture, he just had how many molding planes? He just had three molding three. planes, yep. and he'd stack them, right? He'd yep. stack the details. He'd stack the profiles in so, different orientations. Yeah. He made the most of those three planes. Yeah. And so we'd be in one room and, and you would point out, you know, the different orientations and he'd say, and then down here around the, the mantle and the fireplace, he did it differently. Yeah. Here's the astrogal with cove. Yeah. Here's the oval. It's, he had all of them and he just stacked yeah. them. Yeah. But it just seemed like endless variety was possible. Um, and, and those are, just those are three fixed planes. profile molding planes. Yeah. So this isn't even like hollows and rounds and you can have infinite profile at right. your fingertips he had three planes with fixed profiles and he just mixed them up yeah and stacked different <clears> profiles <throat> together and so you can get creative that way um and I, you know what i like about it what i said in the book when i was looking at fisher's work i said it's so great because you can see his fingerprints everywhere mm. especially if you find a piece of furniture and you say huh i wonder if I, fisher made i wonder that. if that you know og is his same og that he and you match it up to the um to the trim on in the room and you say wow it is yeah. the exact same <laughs> profile um and i know that you know he made that plane because he stamped it with his date on it so that profile is the profile that fisher filed so i can it's just it's unique because then you can say okay he had these three profiles that's sort of his signature thing yeah and not because he was trying i don't think he was consciously thinking someday a book will be written about my work and this will be my signature <laughs> right, this on is it. my my hallmark but it's just practical card. i had he had three profiles he liked and he just you work with it so I, I don't think molding planes are out i would say just you know find an og that you like or something and get your one og plane and that's you can build a ton of stuff with an og yeah that's pretty much all you need for a long time so. Yeah. Uh, so how about chisels? Yeah, you talked about your favorite chisel, which does everything. You said that yeah. was a three-quarter inch chisel. So yep. you recommend that size. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can't have my chisel. But if you found one that was just like it... <laughs> I bet there are other be... three-quarter inch chisels out there. I don't believe that's true. <laughs> but uh, but you should have that attitude about your three-quarter inch chisel. Yeah, my the... chisel, and it's the best one. It's the best one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say a three-quarter inch chisel is the most useful. Um, antique chisels, they've, they're they never perfectly three-quarters. So my three-quarter inch chisel is actually a little bit fatter than three-quarters. It's not quite seven-eighths. Um, so I would say, you know, if you find a seven-eighths chisel, that'd be great too. Um, that's a good general-purpose uh, tool that I use all the time. Um, but... Obviously, for smaller stuff like dovetails, I was saying between dovetails, you just need something that's smaller. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's just too tight, and that's that's too wide of a chisel. Um, so something like a three eighths or something like that would be useful to get in there. Um, you know, half inch could work for some situations, but huh. I, I the one I go to, I think it's a three eighths. Um, but then the third chisel I would say for me is that two inch wide chisel. Yeah, I really I use that thing so much uh, for pairing pins and that kind of stuff that it's really nice. It's like when you're if you think about at a shaving horse, when you have a draw knife and you're shaping a leg of a stool, say, why do you need a, a six inch, seven inch wide blade to uh -huh. shape a little, you know, round leg? Or right. A yeah. Why don't you have a two inch wide draw knife? Exactly. Why don't you have a two inch wide draw knife? And it's not because there's some slicing or whatever that has to happen it's because it's so much easier when you have that wide surface to to hit that quickly you're not carefully trying to right. get it lined up just right you can you can do slicing 
but also you can just jump on there and quickly shape that. Yeah. And I find the same thing with a two inch chisel for shaping pins for uh, assembling mortise and tendon joints. Being able to make those little pins really quick with a two inch chisel just I've tried it with my three quarter inch chisel, thinking this chisel right. is good for everything. Yeah. And I'm like, no, it's I'd rather have my two inch chisel. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and we could talk briefly about things like gouges because I think it segues well into the next next thing. But like carving tools, right? Mm-hmm. These are things that you would um, seek out to address some specific pursuit. Yeah. It's not in just the basic toolkit. Mm-hmm. But if you were wanting to get into carving, you would seek the tools that address the need, mm-hmm. right? Um, just like in doing car repair, where you can kind of futz along with a less than ideal tool. And then when you say, actually, I'm going to be doing this operation a lot, I should get this tool. I should get a, a, a V chisel or a, a, a small gouge to do this. So you're seeking the tool that addresses the need that you know you have um, and that you have come up short in, you know, trying to make do with other tools that weren't made for that operation. So um, we've talked about just the value in seeking out um, uh, a tool to address a need um, where you've struggled before and you might have some specialty tool out there that's available, you say, I'm going to give that a try and see if that's the tool for the job rather than just going and buying the whole massive, you know, carving set to do the, the one little thing that you want to do, just mm-hmm. addressing it, um, you know, piece by piece. And uh, in so doing, I'll just mention real quick, just again, because this is really important that you should be... Um, pursuing quality tools mm-hmm. few yeah. things more frustrating than using a subpar tool like i think i've told you my first experience with using a hand plane was a uh again big box store um kind of thing where the plane like had the little the the um maker's mark was a sticker <laughs> on the on the plane okay that's a bad that's sign. all yeah if it's a sticker and uh <laughs> you know that's not good and so i fiddled with it it was not flat i tried to flatten it um nothing i could do could make this plane work right and i thought boy i want to love hand tools but they're not fun to work with and it's because i picked a lousy plane um you know going into uh, one of our local places and buying a nice uh, wooden body plane for 12 bucks and tuning that up would have given me a completely different perspective. So, or going to one of the, the, the makers that we know who are putting mm-hmm. out really awesome, high quality stuff today, yep. using one of those, it would have been, you know, a revelation yeah. to see how amazing these tools function. Yeah. I mean, I remember stories about, um, I think maybe Jim McConnell was the one who told me a story about, um, he hadn't used many wooden hand planes before, um, but he got an opportunity to use Steve Voigt's tools, oh, his wooden yes. hand planes. Yeah. And he was like, oh, I get it. Wow, <laughs> this is really sweet. So um, it definitely, you know, when you get to use a good example of something, it really opens up your eyes to what you're looking for. Um, and it's important to be able to be, you know, open to that searching around for quality. I mean, I think the great thing about antique tools is that they're not expensive. So, um, you definitely can get duds on eBay, Mm. but, um, but typically they're not crazy expensive. Um, so, you know, buying a brand new saw from a high quality maker, you're going to spend a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. But if you, if you buy three or four, uh, on eBay, cause you had a few duds, you're still, uh, yeah. Sitting pretty good. Yeah. So, and, uh, you know, as we say, antique tools always come with built in story, you know, with them, there's, there's wear and tear. George Walker just wrote about that for issue 10, Mm -hmm. um, the stories tools tell, um, and how there is that real connection, which is, it's an intangible. It probably doesn't make you cut your dovetails faster, 
but there's something to it. You know, we like tradition. And mm -hmm. so having that actual built-in link with tradition in the tools you use is a special thing. Well, and uh, so like the, the cover or the opener photo of that article hmm. uh, was just cool because it's, it's actually uh, my ripsaw. It's my 4TPI ripsaw. It's the handle of it. And you can see this depression where uh, someone's index finger for a long time was riding. So if you picture you when you're uh, sawing, you put your index finger out forward on the edge of this uh, handle and just stroke after stroke after stroke. That gentle through. rub of the finger. Exactly, that gentle rub. How long would it take to wear a depression? Yeah, and I mean, I've seen a lot of stuff that's not actually wear that people like kind of shaped and modified their tools over time and people think, wow, their fingers just wore through there. And this isn't like that. This is pretty subtle, but you can tell, yes, I can lay my finger right on there and say, yep, that's the spot right there. And it's this subtle dip. And it's just cool to see that because you can't do that in, you know, that, that wasn't just from me. Right. From the, the amount of use that I've that's done. That's probably a few generations. Yeah, it's so cool. So I think that's something that, uh, that you that shouldn't be overlooked is something that I appreciate. And then you can, you know, like my back saw that has the T on it. Yeah. You know, Mr. T <laughs> Mr. is T. missing his saw. Yeah. But, uh, but you'll take care of it for, for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a pretty cool thing. Um, so yeah, thank you for listening, uh, to this episode of the Morris and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any comments or questions, uh, leave them below or in the blog post, and we'll get back to you. So uh, until next time. Mm -hmm.